Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you that we are called to come, and you will provide that living water within us, the life of the Holy Spirit. Thank you that whoever asks for the Holy Spirit, you will give freely. And so that is our prayer tonight, our Father, as we come and worship, expecting, asking you to open and apply the scriptures to us. For the sake of Jesus, whom we pray. Amen. Be seated. I would invite you to open in the order of worship the copy of the Confession, chapter 21, on religious worship. And also open in scripture to 1 Timothy chapter 2, which we were reading earlier, and 1 John chapter 5. 1 Timothy 2 and 1 John 5 in chapter 21 of the Confession. I'm grateful that we have a confession that has a whole chapter on the worship of God. We saw in section one that God has the prerogative and the right to tell us how he is to be worshiped. And the scriptures tell us quite clearly the way to worship God is only by his revealed will and that if it's, the scripture is silent, we then are not to include that into worship. No other way, not prescribed, directed in holy scripture. Tonight we want to begin to look at the particulars of how the scriptures tell us that God is to be worshipped. All the elements of the worship of God can be uh, included into two of the main elements, either into word or prayer. Every aspect of public worship is either word, God speaking to us, or prayer, us speaking to God. Everything else is a subset of, of those two larger groups. And as our directory of worship says, it's advisable that these alternate in the service because the worship service is a conversation, if you will, between us and our Father who's gathered us to himself in worship. And it's also a good reminder of why we're doing things. We're going slower in this chapter of the confession and looking at each of these elements. Tonight we want to look at prayer as being an important element of the public worship of God. And in these two sections of the, of the confessions, sections three and four, we have the prominence of acceptable prayer. We have the three requirements for acceptable prayer, the nine descriptions of acceptable prayer, and we'll be reflecting to, to these, reflect on our own personal prayer. Fourth's requests of acceptable prayer, and that brings us to the question, what is our responsibility for acceptable prayer? <clears throat> so section three is prayer as an element of worship. Prayer with thanksgiving is a special part of religious worship and is required by God of all men. In order that prayer may be accepted, it is to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of his Spirit, according to his will. Prayer is to be offered with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance. If vocal, it must be offered in a language that is understood. Let's start with the prominence of acceptable Prayer. Do you notice how the section begins? Prayer with thanksgiving is a special part of religious worship and is required by God of all men. 
The Puritans are often accused of seeing the sermon as almost everything in public worship and nothing else really matters. That they were strong on exhortation and weak in adoration. That is not correct. Prayer is listed first in the confession as the element of ordinary religious worship. And in the directory of worship, the Westminster ministers give more space to prayer in public worship than to any other subject. They saw that the public worship service of God's people should have not less than three prayers. Prayer in the worship of God is to be prominent. It is a special part of religious worship. How often I am hearing as we worship with other believers, and maybe you have heard it as well, the, the, the time of singing is referred to only as the time of worship. You'll hear an expression, let's stand and bring our worship. And what they mean is singing. It's not wrong that singing is part of worship, but the whole service is worship. And if anything is to be prominent, prayer is to be prominent and special in the public worship of God. Don't fall into that, that singing only by itself is worship and everything else is something else. It's all worship. Prayer is to be a central, is acceptable prayer, the prominence of prayer in our public worship. Prayer was central in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant worship service. It's certainly pictured in the tabernacle where worship as the high priest is bringing the sacrifice once a year into the Holy of Holies. He's bringing the blood of a sacrifice. It's the only way to come before God, the shedding of blood. But before he goes into the Holy of Holies, what must he pass? He must pass there the table of incense before he goes into the veil of the holy. There's the incense always rising before the presence of God. And what is that picturing? It's picturing the prayers of God's people. Ultimately, we see this fulfilled in glory. Revelation 5.8, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. As worship is moved into the temple, uh, listen to what God says of the temple. Second Chronicles 7.15 at the dedication, the Lord said to Solomon, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And now my eyes shall be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. To the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord and who hold fast my covenant, even those I will bring into my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples, Isaiah 56 and verse 6. That's why the Lord Jesus, when he came, drove the money changers out of the temple because they had forgotten and replaced that the temple was to be prominently a place of prayer for all the people. We often look at the book of Psalms as being a book of songs that were sung, but it could be just as well saying that it is a book of prayers that were used in the worship of God. Prayer is so central to Old Testament worship that the synagogue is called the place of prayer, Acts 16, 13. This is what is brought into New Covenant worship. There's a continuity 
in our worship in the New Testament. Acts 1.14, the disciples waiting for the Holy Spirit at Pentecost are with one mind continually devoting themselves to prayer. It's after Pentecost the church was continually devoting itself to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer, Acts 2.42. Peter and John go to the church publicly gathered in worship, Acts 4.23, and after prayer, verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Better translation is having prayed because it's not simply sequence. We prayed first and then secondly this happened, but it's causal. Because the church prayed, these things happened. The prominence of public prayer and worship God blessed. And so the scriptures in the New Covenant, Paul instructs us in several places. This is how the church is to pray. 1 Corinthians 14, the church is to pray in these ways and pray publicly so that all can follow and say the amen. We'll see in 1 Timothy 2, he gives a whole chapter to the public worship of God and prayer is prominent. The prominence of acceptable Prayer. The confession then speaks of three requirements of acceptable prayer. The acceptable prayer must be in the name of the Son. John 14, 13 would be a text. One must be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and put your faith in him. Those are the prayers that are heard and we come then in Jesus' name united to him. We come with the help of the Holy Spirit, Romans eight twenty six. He indwells us and he helps us. He helps to, us to pray even when we don't know how to pray. And we must pray according to God's will, 1 John five fourteen. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. God's will is the written scripture. Not just name it and claim it from our own desires, but scripture itself. This wonderful quote from John Calvin, prayer rightly begun springs from faith and faith from hearing God's word. Let us learn that God and his promises is set before us as if he were a willing debtor. Paraphrase, God is saying, I'm going to place myself in your debt. Here, use these promises to make claims on me. I am a willing debtor. Pray God's word back to him. Pray according to his will, according to his word. Those are the requirements for public prayer. And then look at these nine descriptions of acceptable prayer. Each of these could be a meditation First prayer with thanksgiving. Don't forget that that's the first description of acceptable prayer with thanksgiving. Philippians 4, 6, and everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Psalm 100, verse 4, we are to enter his gates with thanksgiving. It's been my practice, trying to discipline my own heart, even in private prayer, Slow down as you come into the presence of God and reflect with thanksgiving of all his mercies, all his gifts. First, don't get to the grocery list first. 
Prayer is to be with thanksgiving. Prayer is to be with understanding. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and 2 says, you're before God. Don't come impulsive. Don't come rashly. Come with reverence. That could be quoted from Hebrews 12, 28. We are to bring acceptable worship with reverence for our God as a consuming fire. He's the king of the whole earth. Psalm 47, verse 7. Sadly, today, in many places, worship is losing this sense of transcendence. It's losing a sense of, of reverence. This quote, in the American religion, as in ancient Gnosticism, there is almost no sense of God's difference from us. In other words, his majesty, sovereignty, self-existence, and holiness. God is my buddy, or my inmost experience, or the power source for my best life now. God is not strange, that is holy, and he's certainly not a judge. He does not evoke fear or awe or a sense of terrifying and disorienting beauty. To borrow a nice phrase from William Placker, it represents, quote, the domestication of transcendence. God is no longer a problem for us. Acceptable prayer must be with reverence. Acceptable prayer must be with humility, because we are only dust and ashes, Genesis 18, 27, the prayer of Abraham. We are the sinners, Luke 18, 3, the tax collector standing far off would not lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, Jesus said, went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In ourselves, we have no right to ask God for anything. But when we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and we are justified and declared forgiven and pardoned and the righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to us and we are accepted as righteous in his sight, we're also adopted into the family and when given the privileges of adoption and the, the greatest of those privileges of adoption is, is prayer. So we come with that humility. We are to pray with fervency. It's the fervent prayer of the righteous that's powerful and effective, James 5, 16. Pray with faith, James 1, 6, but let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. If it's according to his will, if it's according to scripture, and we pray, if it be your will, then pray in faith that he's hearing you, he's listening, he loves you in Christ. He is the Father that says, if you ask for bread, I won't give you a stone. Pray in faith. Pray in love toward God and toward one another, Matthew 6. Pray with perseverance. Praying in the, at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. And the list closes. Acceptable prayer must be in a known language. In context, that's referring to when the Westminster Confession was being written. It was being written to the Protestant Reformation that was bringing the scriptures into the language of the people, translating the Bible into their own languages and bringing the worship service into their own languages. And so it's a reference here that it, the worship of God 
must not be in Latin, which nobody understood. It must be in the language of the people. But certainly it has an application today, even application to the charismatic emphasis, all public prayer must be translated. 1 Corinthians 14, even during the times of the apostles, if there was speaking of tongues in a public service, if they could not be translated, they must be quiet. Prayer must be in a known language. Nine descriptions of acceptable prayer. Each of these could be a meditation. Each of these are a check for our own heart. Do our prayers look like this? And then in section four, we come to the requests of acceptable prayer. Section four reads, prayer is to be made for things that are lawful and for all kinds of men now alive or who will live at a later time. But it is wrong to pray for the dead or for those known to have committed the sin unto death. Let's ask some questions. What does it mean that we're to pray for all things that are lawful? I think this refers back to what we were saying earlier, the will of God, 1 John 5, 14, what God has revealed in his word, in his will. And with the smallest desires of the heart, a child who asks prayer for a sore throat or fear of the dark, that they would sleep, bring these requests to God. Corey ten Boom says, any concern too small to be turned into a prayer any concern too small to be turned into a prayer is too small to be made into a burden. We're paraphrasing any concern that the believer has, bring in prayer to the Lord, or don't turn it into a burden. <laughs> what does it mean that we're to pray for all kinds of men? I think 1 Timothy 2 is, is answering that. 1 Timothy 2, if you have the scripture there in verses 1 through 3, here's Paul's instructions on public prayer and <clears throat> the worship services of, of the church. First of all, then I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. See the priority of prayer there in verse 1. I urge this to be done. This is not a suggestion. Prayer is required in public worship of God. And he says, first of all, this is not just, I have a list here in my mind, and the first thing on the list, it's the idea first of importance, of utmost significance. Don't neglect this. If a church is to prosper, if a church is to have God's blessing, if the gospel is to spread, that church must devote itself, especially in the public worship of God, to prayer. <clears throat> we see the variety of prayer. It's four different words here using all kinds of prayers. There must be supplications or requests the idea there is of a specific need. There are times when the church has particular needs that we're to be praying for with our government, and with our culture. It might be an appointment to a Supreme Court, the elections coming up, the church is to pray. Then prayers, it's a general word for all prayers, but perhaps it's a reference here in this context to just those ongoing things that you would pray for, for all of our leaders, for their wisdom, for their repentance for their knowledge of God, for their holiness, for their fear of the Lord in all of their decisions. Intercessions, 
It's a word that's not used that often, but it means to pray on behalf of others, to intervene on their behalf. What a picture. The church is here as a mediator, praying for the unbelieving nations of the world. As long as they are outside of Christ, their prayers are not heard, but the church to, to intervene and to, and to pray on their behalf. Just as the Holy Spirit prays for us and our Savior prays for us, the church is to pray on behalf of these kings and rulers. And with thanksgiving, here it is again. Not necessarily thankful for those sinful leaders and their sinful actions, but the thankful for the overall hand of God that's behind them and ruling all things and will even ordain all of the sins of people for his glory, for his and our good. The variety of prayer in public worship. What's the scope of public prayer? Verse 1, it's to be made for or on behalf of. There's again the idea of intercession. Israel in exile was to pray on behalf of pagan Babylon, Jeremiah 29.7. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Pray for everyone, all people, all leaders, all governments, even the emperor, even the heads of state, verse 2. All those in authority, it's the idea of those in prominence who influence the culture, those who make decisions that affect your life. Pray for them. The universities, the newscast, those in charge of the banking system, those that are making very influential decisions for our culture and our government. Pray for these things. All kinds of men. That's what we're to be praying for. Another question, what does it mean that we're to pray for men now alive? Or who will live at a later time? Well, David prayed for future generations, 2 Samuel 7.29. The elders prayed for future children for Ruth, Ruth 4.12. The Lord prayed for future believers, future sheep to be added into his flock, John 17, 20. So we are to pray for our children and grandchildren and their spouses that they haven't even met yet and their children. who We are to pray for those who are not yet even alive. What does it mean that we're not to pray for the physically dead? Well, all things that govern worship is, first of all, where is there a command in Scripture? There's no command in Scripture to pray for the dead. The only example that comes close is when David is praying for his child who is dying, right? Second Samuel 12, 22. But what happened as soon as the child died? Stopped praying. So contrary to the Roman church that has mass cards for the dead, praying for those who've died, it's not biblical. It's wrong. Not only is it wrong because there's no command in Scripture, but there's no benefit. The person who's died, if they were a believer, what could you possibly ask for that they don't have now in Christ? They've seen the face of Christ. They've been fully satisfied with the joy of their Savior. What could you possibly pray for? There is no purgatory. Believers immediately with Christ. And if they are an unbeliever, their eternal state is fixed. Luke 16, 26, they cannot pass. They have entered into eternal judgment. Only today is the day of salvation. We must be ready to die, ready to meet Christ. You are not to pray for those who have died. 
Perhaps a more difficult question is what does it mean that we're not to pray for the spiritually dead? <clears throat> Turn to 1 John chapter 5. First John 5, verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. If we can say, view that spiritual death is to be placed outside of Christ's kingdom, a parallel might be somewhat similar, Jeremiah 7, verse 12, where the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah and says, Jeremiah, stop praying for Israel. They're beyond repentance. <clears throat> Judgment is certain. You must not pray anymore for Israel. Or a similar passage, <clears throat> excuse me, in Hebrews 10:26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much Worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? When someone has so hardened themselves and not repented and not listened to the two or three witnesses of the church that have come to them urging them to repent and return to Christ, then then, according to Matthew 18, they are to be put out of the church and treated as an unbeliever. But while someone is in the church, we are obligated to pray for someone who is sinning, and we are to pray for their repentance. We are to eagerly go to them and lovingly call them to Christ. But when a person is excommunicated and putting out of the church, then the church is released from their membership vows of praying for them. I think I would humbly say that Westminster Confession, I think here at this point, has overstated themselves. The scripture does not say it's wrong to pray for those who are excommunicated. 1 John 5, 17 just says you should not. And there, if we know the person who's been excommunicated, it may be a family member, maybe a friend, and they want to keep praying for that person, keep praying for that person. I don't, I don't believe it's proper to say that it would be wrong to pray for them. It's an overstatement. But the spiritual death is those who have been put out of the church of Christ by excommunication because of the lack of repentance. And then we are free not to pray for them publicly, certainly a church as a church in their vows. What a responsibility we have for public prayer. There's the responsibility of the ministers and the elders as they lead us in public prayer. The directory of worship says they are to prepare in thought. It's desirable that the minister prepare himself for public prayer by previous meditation and to prepare in writing. I'm very grateful for um, 
this church and the example of the elders over the years as they lead us in public prayer. They're bringing their thoughts already prepared to public prayer. Written prayers are not wrong, but the Puritans were against that. Um, they were reacting to the prayers of the prayer book, and they saw that as equivalent as if you wouldn't come down for breakfast and write out your greeting to your mom in the morning and read your greeting to your mom at the breakfast table. So too, the prayers of God's people are to be full of compassion and love for God of our Father. But don't go all the way, don't go too far, and therefore prayers just be extemporaneous and no preparation and just wing it. No, there must be much prayer and reflection, bringing an outline and prepared thoughts. They referred to the public prayers as studied prayers or conceived prayers. And so coming, the minister and the elders have a responsibility to lead the church in a prayer that they have already prepared at least in outline form. My practice when leading pastoral prayers over the years was to take at least four to six Sundays to cover the whole list of topics that are to be included by, from Scripture into public prayers. We're to bring many things to the Lord as a church. And so it would take that long to cover all of the things as we pray for so many different matters. The Puritans called this the comprehensive prayer or the long prayer. We refer to it as the pastoral prayer. From the Directory of Worship of our church, our denomination, quote, During the service, there should be comprehensive prayer, which may be offered as more than one prayer throughout the worship service. Such prayer should include adoration of God's perfections, thanksgiving for all his mercies, confession of sin, supplication for forgiveness through the blood of the atonement and for renewal by the Holy Spirit. Lamentation in times of distress or crisis. Intercession for the needs of God's people and others. It's fitting that the congregation should intercede for the whole of mankind, for civil rulers, for the church universal, for Christian missions at home and abroad, Christian education and other Christian activities, for our whole church, for churches in ties of like faith with us, for the welfare of the local congregation itself, including its officers, its ministries, its members, pleading for their growth and sanctification and remembering the daily needs and care of the people, the families, the singles, the rising generation, the elderly, the poor, the sick, the dying, the mourning, the erring, the unsaved loved ones, and for whatever else may seem particularly suitable takes weeks to get through that. As the minister and the elders prepare, they have a responsibility. And it is a, a cherished time in public worship. It's tragic, though, the emphasis on modern church growth, of putting away the pastoral prayers. We were on vacation a while back and worshipped with a conservative Presbyterian denomination. We were sad as there was only one prayer in the whole service. And that was just a brief prayer before the offering. There was no prayer of repentance, no convocation, no prayer before the hearing of the word or after it. 
No pastoral prayer for the needs of the body or missions. No prayer to open or close the service. What's happening? Prayer is to be prominent. Paul says to Timothy, first of all, I urge you. Responsibility of the elders. But there's a responsibility of the congregation as well in public prayer. Again, from the directory of worship, members of the congregation not only are bound to listen as he prays, but should themselves pray in their hearts. This is a group prayer. It will be a lengthy prayer. And we need to prepare ourselves for this and not be weary of it. Remember, we're in God's presence. This is a conversation with our God, our Savior. And we are bringing the needs of our heart and praying for one another. There's, there's work for the minister to do in preparing public prayer. There's work for the congregation to do. And so, whatever helps you, maybe you pray aloud or quietly with uh, the public prayer. Maybe you're adding your amens. And prayer in the Puritans' lives was prominent. It strikes us how they were a praying people. During the Westminster Assembly, the writing of the Westminster Confession, they would have days of prayer and fasting that would last from nine until four. At such a service, two men would preach and three would pray. And these prayers might last from one to two hours. There are frequent notes of these prayers of that length, and yet there's no record of any complaints. On the contrary, Bailey wrote, this was the sweetest day that I have seen in England. After Dr. Twissy began with a brief prayer, Mr. Marshall prayed for two hours, most divinely, confessing the sins of the members of the assembly in a wonderful, pathetic, and prudent way. After Mr. Aerosmith preached for an hour and then a psalm, and thereafter Mr. Vines prayed for nearly two hours. Prayer is communion with God. And we need it. This is why we are made in his image. If we don't pray, we're losing our sense of bearing, our sense of definition, who we are, and what satisfies us. Gerhardus Voss writes, That man bears God's image means much more than that he is a spirit and possesses understanding and will, etc. It means, above all, that he is disposed for communion with God. And that all the capacities of his soul can act in a way that corresponds to their destiny only if they rest in God. Prayer is communion with God and we need it. Prayer is communion with God and we are to value it. What an awesome privilege that God would want our prayers. That he would call us as his children to pour out our hearts to him. What an awesome privilege. Do our own private prayers reflect this? We realize this is a privilege. May we not lose that in our public worship as well. We're not to think of the elements of public worship. What do we do in a public worship service as a sterile list? And let's just check them off. These are, this is intimate communion between God and his people. Again, from the 
OPC Directory of Worship, the triune God is present in public worship, not only by virtue of the divine omnipresence, but much more intimately as the faithful covenant Savior. Through Christ, God's people have access by one spirit to the Father. In an assembly of public worship, the triune God is not only the one to whom worship is directed, but also the one who is active in the worship of the church. Through his public ordinances, the covenant God actively works to engage his people in communion with himself. In public worship, God communes with his people and they with him in a manner which expresses the closest relationships, the father and his redeemed children, of the son and his beloved bride, of the Holy Spirit and the living temple in which he dwells. Prayer is communion with God, and we need it. Prayer is communion with God, and we are to value it. Prayer is communion with God. And we're not to be passive. We're to be very active in prayer and in public worship. In public worship, all the people of God participate actively. They're not spectators waiting to be entertained. They're active participants in the celebration of praise to God, in which God himself is the spectator and also an active participant. They receive the blessing of the Lord and the salutation and benediction. They pray with the one who prays, the prayer being uttered aloud, becoming their prayer. In the reading of God's word, they eagerly listen to what God reveals of himself, of his redeeming actions for them, and of his will for their lives. And they confess together with all the people the faith of the church. They listen with joyful anticipation to the preached word, as God, through his servant, explains and applies the word of truth. They sing the praise of God. They offer themselves and their money to the Lord. Prayer is not passive. The triune God is not a passive spectator in public worship, but actively works in each element of the service of worship. Neither are the people of God to be passive spectators in public worship, but by faith are to participate actively in each element of the service, including, especially, prayer. Prayer is to be a prominent part of the public worship of God. Shall we pray? Our Father, what an awesome privilege this is that you would have set your love on us, the likes of us, before time and chosen us to be given to the Savior as his inheritance, the likes of us that Christ would die for us and redeem us, the likes of us that the Holy Spirit would indwell as a temple and be conforming us to the likeness of Christ, and that you would have given us this privilege of adoption and prayer. May we see it as the priority in our own daily lives. Forgive us for how short we fall. Thank you for this church and for the emphasis that's been placed on prayer. May we continue in this. May we grow in this. May we understand why we do what we do. May the public prayer of your peoples be a time of means of grace and great encouragement for your people. And now, our Father, we pray that you will draw us to the table, the sacrament our Savior gave to us. We pray in his name. Amen.